are not here. I have no idea how it's going to get from my phone to those who aren't here, but I'll let somebody else handle that. This, uh, well, I want to uh, introduce a couple of guests uh, in our class this morning. Uh, many are aware and ask, I mean, why am I here instead of in Mississippi? And it has to do with family, uh, a son and his sister who uh, after my wife died and I had a stroke and heart attack, for some reason didn't think I ought to live by myself in Mississippi. <laughs> and so I'm here. And this is Russell Rankin. He's a deacon here at Highland. And uh, we became acquainted at Highland back when he was in Baylor. And so uh, we've been actually a, well, a long time. And with him is my favorite granddaughter. And I can say that because none of my other granddaughters are here. Uh, <laughs> But Anna Grace, uh, she, she's, she's special. Uh, I send my grandchildren a scripture every morning when I get up about five, and I know they're not up by that time. But when they do, the first thing they're going to do is look at their phone, and I want them to see the Word of God, their first thought in the morning. But for Anna Grace, sometime during the day, I'm going to get a reply text that says, I love you so much, Papa. And uh, so... Uh, Glad that she could <laughs> be here today. Well, we'll turn to John 15. Uh, and we're really following uh, close on the heels of John 14, realizing this discourse in the upper room uh, that Jesus didn't throw out a topic and said, okay, the next chapter, then move to another topic. Uh, I encourage you last week to read John 13 through 17 as a unit and just imagine Christ has invited you to dinner and said, I've got some things I want to share with you. And that's the only way you can, can really grasp it. And in John 15, we are, uh, uh, begins with the familiar uh, passage of the vine and, and the branches. Uh, so let's go ahead and read that passage. And um, Jesus says, I am the true vine, my father is the vine keeper. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you and abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Well, the parallel is obvious, just as branches, fruit-bearing trees and the foliage on trees cannot exist and live without it being attached to the trunk and the, the main vine through which the nutrients uh, supply uh, to the whole tree, neither can we apart from Christ. 
Now, what we're talking about, let me remind you of last week, this is that second aspect of salvation. The purpose for which we are saved is to be restored to a relationship with God, having been separated by sin and death. Okay, what's necessary to be restored to a relationship with Almighty, eternal, holy God? Our sins have to be forgiven. That penalty of sin has to be paid. What's the bonus of being restored to a relationship with God is those heavenly mansions in heaven. And so for, chapter 14 starts all about our, our heavenly mansions. But the rest of the chapter is not about that day when we'll once get to heaven, but it's the home that Jesus has prepared for us here through the presence of the Holy Spirit, that other helper, the paraclete, the comforter, who's going to come alongside us. And remember, the main point of our lesson is it's not a different kind because of the third person of the Trinity. Jesus used the term another helper as exactly the same kind as the helper they had with them then, Jesus himself. And to identify him, he said, said, the world doesn't know him just as they did not know Jesus. The world did not know Jesus Christ. But the one who will come is the one alongside of you who abides with you and shall be in you. So that's the victorious life, the triumphant life, because our sins have been forgiven but not just that, but because we now have Christ himself abiding with us. And as James Poole pointed out, uh, the key of the whole passage is not about the heavenly mansions and uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's that key verse that Jesus is in the Father. Now, is there anyone that questions the fact that the incarnate Jesus Christ in flesh and blood was God himself? Okay, I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. They were one and the same. And so he says the same thing about us. Now that the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us and we've been restored to a relationship with Christ, with God, we are in Him and He is in us just as God and Christ were one and the same. So this chapter continues with the idea Okay, it's not just a one-time experience in which we receive Jesus Christ and now he lives in our life, but he abides with us. And that becomes clearer because he's explained the nature of the Holy Spirit that is Christ living in us. So what does it mean to abide? This last week, I've slept in five different beds in four different states. Can you imagine how wonderful it was to get home yesterday yeah. in my own bed? The familiarity of my own house. I mean, this is where I live. This is my home. I mean, the comfort, just the blessings of, of abiding, having a place to abide that familiar, is familiar with us. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's a, a real key uh, blessing about abiding in Christ and and what we're talking about in Christ is everything that Christ provides and abides to us I mean you could just use the term instead of abiding in Christ 
the abundant life, the victorious life, the Christ-like life. Remember, as uh, Paul said uh, in Galatians 2, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet it's not I, but Christ lives in me. And abiding means everything I do is no longer me, but now it is Christ because he is abiding, abiding in me. Uh, so, Andrew, let's go on and throw the slides up. I thought we would develop these sequ sequentially, but it's all there. This will facilitate your, your note-taking uh, of what it means to be in Christ. But the uh, example here starts off with the idea of pruning. And it's kind of disturbing, you know, like if we don't bear fruit, and we should because of Christ seeking to bear through our witness to bear fruit, Talk about prune, thrown away, cast into the fire. Uh, let me just say offhand, you, you don't need to fear losing your salvation because you're not as faithful as you ought to be. You're not winning people to the Lord as diligent in uh, living a, a, a holy life. Uh, now, that's, a, that's an, another issue, a problem, but he's not going to cast you aside in your salvation. You still are in him and abide in him. So let's, let's try to understand uh, those imp, imp, implications. Uh, in, in Mississippi, and I have aspirations for the house I just bought here in Hewitt, uh, of, uh, my, my hobby was landscaping and yard work. And uh, you know, people in Mississippi, I, I have to say, well, I don't, I don't go hunting, I don't fish, I don't play golf, I love working in my yard. They say, you are weird. <laughs> but, but it was a beautiful yard. But I learned growing up, in fact, that was my old home place where we built our retirement home. Had been out of the family 25 years, and so a lot of nostalgia there. But uh, I learned a lot about shrubs and uh, trees. We had some fruit trees and uh, the necessity of, of pruning them. Well, uh, I remember even last fall a year ago, you know, after the first freeze, you get out and start, uh, you know, trimming the limbs because the more you prune them, it's necessary for the foliage to be full and fruit-bearing trees to bear, bear fruit. And I got my clippers and I was just weighing into them, just chopping all those, just reshaping them, so forth. And uh, my wife, uh, uh, you know, was, has uh, many years uh, just d dementia increasing and so forth, but her security was being with me. She loved to get out in the yard, just follow me around. But she would get so upset, Jerry, don't cut that limb, it's pretty, it's got all this greenery, you're ruining it. And finally, I just had to take her inside and get a distraction, turn on Golden Girls or something for her to watch, and, <laughs> and uh, she would sit there and watch it. But to get her out of that, because she was just getting so upset. And she was just grabbing those cuttings and getting a mason jar, put water in it, and put them in, and we had them all over the house because she just wanted to preserve all that greenery. And it, it was a stage in which uh, it's quite distressing when she often did not know who I was. And I remember the next day she said, Jerry, some man came into our yard yesterday and just ruined our shrubs. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, the necessity of pruning, otherwise, uh, you know, my mom taught me the tedious way to, to prune rose bushes. I mean, you just don't go chopping them with the, the hedge clippers. But if I didn't, 
I mean, you might have a few kind of weak wilted rosebuds at the top, but just a scraggly plant. But if you, you prune them, those little buds are there and it's just going to come out full of roses. And we had some peach trees growing up and you had to prune those peach trees viciously to get a good crop of peaches. Now the problem was that those little willowy, whip-like uh, branches of the peach tree make wonderful switches. <laughs> and my mom would get a bundle of them and they were always right outside the kitchen door. And I tell you, a swat of a peach twig on the bare calves will suddenly elicit respect and obedience. <laughs> it, it, it worked, but uh, that was a consequence of of pruning the, the, the trees. Well, it's, it's interesting, uh, Paul, a good analogy that Paul makes to this, and it's kind of become, been a life verse when, uh, you know, just God challenging me to, uh, as a missionary, uh, to service and walk with him and how essential that was. In his last two verses of 1 Corinthians 9, uh, he says, I run not as without aim, I fight not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, lest I have preached to others, I myself would be disqualified, the King James used, lest I should be cast away. And I've always been intrigued with that. How could Paul, of all people, filled with the Holy Spirit, witness, church planning, carrying the gospel all over the civilized world, be concerned about being cast away. Again, doesn't have anything to do with our, our salvation, but disqualified from God's purpose for his life. But he knew unless he disciplined his walk with the Lord to walk in holiness and, and stayed in constant talk with the abiding of Christ in his life, that even he could come to the point where his life was no longer useful that he was not qualified to fulfill God's purpose for his life, uh, which we're going to see. So what are the, and, and the, the whole point of that, don't forfeit the life God has given you here and now. Yeah, we can, we can live for the glory of one day being with God in heaven, but that's not the point. He has come to dwell in us and give us the power of the Holy Spirit for a purpose of serving Him uh, in this life. So uh, I guess a, a, a challenge to kind of begin is uh, one that I would have to respond to possibly. Has your life ever uh, kind of taken a backward step and come dry spiritually? You know, you just don't feel a constant awareness of God's presence. Uh, you know, prayer doesn't seem to uh, get beyond the ceiling, and you, you try to focus on Bible study, and it's just not, not speaking to you and hard to be motivated to continue. Been there many times. Well, there's a real key to it, and it's in abiding. Not just uh, saying hello and visiting God on Sunday morning when we worship, and it's a lot easier in corporate worship, isn't it? But alone with all the burdens and challenges and responsibilities and just the chaos of life and all going around us in society, sometimes it's, it's hard to just abide. 
and have that God consciousness. As I said last week, uh, I like to think of it as just a God consciousness. There's not a moment you're not aware of God being with you and in your life. You can naturally, as it's just a practice, you relinquish everything to Him because you're aware He is with you. Uh, I love the concept of the prayer of relinquishment. You know, you've got a burden, you're struggling with something, you know, Lord, it's beyond me, I can't handle it, and you turn it over to the Lord, and it's His problem. It's on His shoulders now. You don't have to bear that anymore. Well, you lose that sense of God consciousness and His presence in your life, life's going to, to go backwards, not where God wants you to be and the, why He's given us the Holy Spirit. So, so okay, uh, just several things. Now, this will help us pace it. I'm watching the, the clock. And, uh, so what do we have? What's the results of abiding? Your life will bear fruit. Now, there's uh, could be interpreted two different ways. Uh, what is fruit? I think our first impression would probably be witnessing, bringing others to Christ, bearing fruit. That's how we talk of Christian ministry, certainly how missionaries refer to, to their work, uh, whether or not it's fruitful, whether or not there have been a response, and some churches have started, been able to win, win people to the Lord to bear fruit. And, of course, that's what Christ wants to do through us, why uh, he, he lives in, in us. You know, uh, back to this, this reflecting that second stage of the salvation process, Ephesians 2, 89, For by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves, is not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. For we are created in Christ Jesus for his workmanship that he ordained for us before the creation of the world. In other words, we were created and saved for a purpose, a purpose to serve God, to be his witnesses. Uh, that's why, and it's essential that it's being Christ in us that produces that fruit and empowers us uh, to be his witness. Acts 1.8 you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and be my witnesses, even to the ends of the earth. Uh, when did that Holy Spirit come upon us? When we were saved. We couldn't have been saved without the Spirit convicting us of sin and convincing us of the truth of righteousness in Jesus Christ and coming to live within us, as Christ told us in chapter, chapter four, 14. But there's another reference to fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, isn't that going to be a reflection and outcome and result of the Spirit living within us? Uh, in Galatians, uh, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. You know, you know the problem I have now, I started to say most Christians have, I'm not going to attribute that to all of you or anybody else, but the problem I have Okay, we know how we ought to live. We know what it ought to look like for us to be a Christian, for, us, for Christ to be in us. That we ought to love, be other-centered, giving ourselves for others. We ought to have that joy, that abiding peace, uh, patience, and so forth. But this is really back under the law in the flesh when we think, okay, so I've got to live that way. And we, that's the effort and what we try to do. Because we've got a good guideline there, very good outline. 
Well, I don't know if you've ever had a work colleague or maybe even the family, maybe you, you and your wife that, you know, things just kind of get strained and uh, it, it's amazing. Uh, I've had to deal with this with missionaries. It's amazing how they get put on the same team and have just strong personalities that are exactly opposite, that just great against one another, just driving everybody up, up the wall and everything. And you, it just makes you irritated. It takes away your joy, your sense of peace, and so forth. And, and many times, like, I've become under the conviction, you know, well, well, I shouldn't feel that way. I shouldn't have that attitude. I'm going to love that person. <laughs> yes. You know, this is what God told me to do as a Christian. I ought to love them. I'm going to love them. No, you're not. <laughs> no, that's, you're not capable of that. What you need is not love to that person. What you need is Jesus. And Jesus is right there with you. He's abiding with you. You're in Him. And you relinquish that to Jesus. And God, love that person through me with your love, not my capacity to love them. I don't know if you ever had any conflict with your spouse or your home or other work colleagues or anything. And, uh, you know, you just have an edge to everything, you know, impatience and always uh, saying something that's kind of harsh that you know is not appropriate and everything. And God convicts you and say, okay, I'm going to be patient. You know, <laughs> they just rub you the wrong way. I'm going to be patient now. I'm not going to react. No, you're not. <laughs> it's Jesus that enables you to uh, accept that instead of reacting in, in a harsh way. And so... The, the fruit, I mean, either way is appropriate, however you want to interpret that. But uh, what we need to take away from this, the consequences of not abiding. Why are we not the witnesses that we ought to be? And diligent and sensitive to opportunities to confront people with the claims of Christ and and to share our testimonies. Why are, are these seven fruits of the Spirit always elusive and breaking down in our lives? Uh, because it doesn't come of ourselves. It's from Christ, the Christ life within us. And uh, closely tied to that is the matter of answered prayer. In verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, whatever you wish, it will be done for you. I, I just really get a guilt feeling and have a problem with all the verses that talk about the assurance of answered prayer, uh, you know, because it's kind of back on me. I'm falling short in, in, in some way. Uh, so that means whatever you ask for, you know, you've got assurance because Christ is in you. The one you're praying for is the one right there within you to make it happen and to, to do it. Uh, but I think what it's implying is not that, okay, I need something and I just want to pray for it and ask, ask God for it. And okay, and always there's the issue, well, is that according to God's will or, or not? No, if Christ is abiding in you, your communication with the Father through Christ, His authority, His presence is going to be compatible with what He wants for you. It's going to be according to His will. It's not an iffy type thing because he's the one inviting you. It's through him that you're praying. It's kind of like uh, 
my, my daughter, Russell's uh, sister, was in the second master's commission at Highland here back in the, the 90s. And it's life-changing and equipping her for witnessing everything. She came home at Christmas and she said, Dad, what's your life verse for the next year? I'm like, what? And uh, I said, well, I've, you know, I've got several life verses, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Matthew 6, 33, and, you know, a, a few. And what do you mean for, for next year? I said, well, we're just talking. God in his sovereignty knows everything we're going to face in the coming year, what's going to happen and everything and what we need. And we can just seek him for a verse that's just going to be the rock, the foundation, the anchor you know, that sees us through what he knows we're going to experience in the next week. And I thought, I like that. That's good. And I, I don't know why, but during the holidays, I just kind of, an obsession in the Psalms. I read the Psalms every morning. But with Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So I told her, I said, I, I think... Uh, Psalm 37.4 may be the verse that, that God has for me the next week, and I quoted it, and she said, Well, Dad, what are the desires of your heart? <laughs> oh, that we can see an evangelistic harvest in Southeast Asia and just see all these peoples come to know the Lord. I mean, I just hated this. When your children get at the point, they start mentoring you. <laughs> she looked at me and said, Really, Dad? I said, okay, my desire is to lose weight, to have a little more margin in my life and not be so busy, hectic lifestyle and everything. But you know what I found? That when you delight in the Lord, the Lord is the desire of your heart. You know, it's not like all these other things and things in the world that you may, may want would make life easier and happier, but he's your only desire when you delight in him. And I think how that, that's how it works with, with, with prayer. What you pray is going to be what God wants you to pray, what he wants to give you. But he wants you to see that he is the source and the answer to that prayer. And so because he dwells in us, he's even guiding our prayer. Well, uh, another point that he says in, uh, in verse... Uh, Eight, my father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So one thing of Christ abiding is God is glorified in our life. And I, I hope you're familiar with uh, the Christian life and biblical teachings to understand that, I mean, that's the ultimate purpose, even of our salvation. It's not for our benefit to escape hell and give us a new life. It glorifies God because he's the one uh, who died for us and made it possible and for us. And I mean, throughout the, the scriptures, uh, the, uh, in uh, Galatians 3.17, you know, whatever you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do to the glory of God. In 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 10 and 20, you know, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. That's the purpose for which you have been redeemed and been bought by the blood of Jesus. And Paul's testimony in Philippians 1.20, my expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but whether by life or death, God will be exalted, glorified in my life. And so when you are yielding your life day by day 
to the reality of Christ's presence in your life, there is, is nothing you do that is not part from Him. I mean, every burden is, is instinctively just cast upon Him. Uh, the guidance that you need in decisions you're making and in relationship, He's the one guiding those. And He's glorified when you're not trying to do it yourself and yet live for yourself, but it's, it's yielding in Him. Uh, as we sang about the potter's hand, good, good, good song for, for this. You know, He's molding us, shaping us. Uh, but the whole idea of the abiding and indwelling is Paul's illustration of the, the vessel. We're just earthen vessels, a container for the glory of God, to radiate His glory, and that others might see His, his glory in us. Uh, number four, and he says in the same verse, uh, by this uh, you prove to be my disciples. What does it mean to be a, a disciple? I often ask my students in classes I've been teaching at Mississippi College, uh, you know, are you a disciple? Well, I belong to him. I believe in him. Uh, I've come to faith in him. I, I've made him consciously my Lord and Savior trying to live for him. But are you a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple? The terminology, of course, means a learner, a follower. Uh, the whole idea of a disciple is there's an authority over you, a teacher. The disciples called him what so often? Rabbi. You know, they saw him as that spiritual authority and, and their teacher. When, uh, of course, the Great Commission says go into all the world and make disciples, Every year at our annual mission meeting, uh, those of us that were church planners had to give reports, you know, whether or not we'd started a church, how many churches had been started in the region we are working, how many uh, Indonesian Muslims had been baptized, how many did we baptize, and give the statistics and report. And one year, I remember some smart aleck in the group started asking everyone as they gave the report, how many disciples did you make this year? Well, I could tell them how many had led to faith, how many had been baptized, but there were a lot of them. They hadn't developed much Christ-like character in their life. They weren't especially faithful, you know, to church and Bible study. They weren't growing in the Lord. Could I call them a disciple? Could I those add that number to the list? And, uh, you know, it kind of reflects back on, on yourself. Uh, am I a disciple? What does it mean to be a, a disciple of Christ? Well, I've come to a conviction, I guess as, as a missionary, as a missionary administrator and leader, that it's not about your walk with the Lord, your holiness and your, your service and all the things you do at church, that you're never really a disciple until you're a disciple maker. Is there anyone in your realm of relationships and family that have become a follower of Christ, a dedicated commitment to Him because of you? And not so much a formal training to be a disciple, but an example that they come to follow and understand that this is what it means to, to be a Christian. 
And I really see that as the whole analogy of the fruit here. Uh, not just coming back from visitation one night and how many prayed to receive Christ, but how many are becoming disciples because of your influence and your example of coming alongside them, that they can see what the Christian life is all about. I came to the conclusion, really, even before I went to the mission field, that, uh, that we are the kind of Christians we are more by example than teaching. We see someone that's just, uh, you know, got a beautiful uh, attitude and just vivacious happiness and joy all the time, is always praising the Lord, and, uh, and see somebody that's just a, a diligent witness, it just comes natural to them, and I say, I want to be like that. It's, it's a model to follow. And, uh, I mean, Christ is the model, and Christ is in us, so our lives should be modeling Christ, that others would see him in us. And it's not a, a formula or something you learn in an in instruction of how then to make a disciple, but just living, interacting, being in the midst of people is disciple-making because people are seeing Christ in you. Okay, where are we? Uh, number four? Okay, five? Okay, five. Live, live in obedience. Okay, in... Um, Verse 8, my Father is glorifying this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to me but I disciples. Uh, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. So obedience of the commandments, and, uh, you know, I, I kind of regret that the word here was used, commandments, because that, that just echoes legalism to us. We're commanded to, so that's why we do it. And many of us are trying to live what the Bible teaches because that's what we're taught and told how we ought to live. We're not to do this. We're not to do that. This is what we're to do. This is how we're to live. But it's, again, a legalistic approach that comes back to our own efforts that's invariably going to fail. The only way you can walk in obedience to the teaching of God's Word and if you want to boil it down to the Ten Commandments or whatever is taught and commanded and instructed to us, it's only because the enabler is living in you. It's not you that's trying it, but it's Christ that is in enabling you to live and follow in, in that way. And uh, in Okay, where I got, got it, got live. Okay, full, fullness of joy. Get to verse 11. These things have I spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. So, what's the ultimate outcome of all of these evidences of abiding in Christ, of Christ being in us? Uh, that's, that's the joyful Christian life, it's the joy. It's not the burden of what you'd have to do and how to live yourself. You've got somebody doing it for you, and it brings tremendous joy in your heart. So do you ever lose your joy? Are there ever days you're just down, discouraged, fighting depression and, you know, the disappointments and things just aren't working out the way you'd like to with your family and your kids and uh, so forth? Uh, 
That can be devastating. It certainly destroys the potential of fruit in your life. In fact, take a moment. This is just just take a moment. Turn to Psalm 51. Uh, we've got a, a good illustration of this. Now, in verse 10, you'd know, be able to quote verse 10. You may not recognize the rest. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Okay. But skip down to verse 13. David is saying, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Okay, David was king, political king. He was the uh, military leader. But his primary responsibility as queen is, uh, king of Israel is to teach people the ways of the Lord and lead people transgressing those ways back to him. A spiritual task. And he wasn't doing a very good job. Now, this is a syllogism. Now, what a syllogism is, is a set of premises that lead to a conclusion. And this is the conclusion. Then I will teach people the way of the Lord. Okay? Is that fruit bearing? Is that what our lives are supposed to do? Bringing people to know the Lord and teaching them God's ways? So why wasn't he bearing fruit as a leader of Israel ought to do, or say as we ought to do. What did he pray in the verse before that, verse 12? Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. You know, a grouchy, complaining Christian that's always bemoaning the world and criticizing everything around them, that's not going to draw a lot of people to Christ, is it? But you just have an effervescent joy in your life, people are going to think, what's wrong with you? What have you got? How could you have such joy in the midst of everything that's going on? Or even the adversity that you've been going through in your life. That's one of the most powerful testimonies you could have. Don't wait, as John Piper said, don't waste your cancer. You know, whatever adversity, you know, that's the greatest opportunity for people to see Christ in you. Keep the joy of your salvation. That comes from abiding in Christ. Okay, why had he lost his joy? Okay, move back up to verse 11. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He had lost a sense of God's presence in his life. It's like the Holy Spirit had been removed. And you lose that sense of the abiding presence of Christ you're going to lose your joy. It just follows a natural consequence. And you lose your joy, you're going to lose your fruit-bearing capacity of drawing people to, to Christ. And, of course, we know the reason that he felt that God's presence had been removed is because of his sin. But it wasn't his, his, his adultery, his, his lust, his, but he knew that was in his heart. Okay, put it in our perspective. What should be in our heart? rather than that seed of sin that's drawing us to worldly and carnal allure and attractions in the world or self-serving, self-centering, that's all about us. Uh, it's Christ in us to abide in Him. And that's the, the, the fullness of joy. Uh, number 7, verse 12. In fact, uh, the whole passage here. If I can get back. Uh, what are we? Oh, John 15. Okay. 
This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all things that I've heard from my Father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. But the only capacity of loving others is, uh, is because Christ's the one doing the loving. You know, when that young Pharisee asked Jesus what was the greatest commandment, uh, I've been promoting and preaching missions, uh, you know, all my life, and it's the main thing. And, uh, you know, we call the Great Commission, you know, to go into all the world. And when he asked what was the greatest command, I said, why didn't Jesus say, go into all the world and make disciples of every nation? But he didn't. What did he say? He quoted Deuteronomy 6, 5. says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. And then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how do you love a lost world? You know, I think of the people groups. You don't even know where they are. They're on the other side of the world. Can't even pronounce their names and uh, how are we expected to love them? Well, it's not our nature to love them. It's not our nature to love people that are just kind of a thorn in the flesh to our joy and happiness and, and well-being. But it is God's nature to love them. That's why the command is to love God with all of our heart so that his love then, then can flow through us to our neighbors and those around us, including uh, a lost world. And the whole nature of love is, is other-centered. It's not about me. And when you read about the flesh and the spirit, that flesh is not just the efforts to do it yourself, which is legalism rather than grace, but it's about me, the big I in the center of sin. You know, everything is about me, my joy, my happiness, my desires, what I want, what makes me uh, comfortable and happy. And the willingness to die, lay down your life, for the sake of someone else's welfare and need, especially their need for salvation and for Christ, is the ultimate expression of love. Willing to give up your comforts, what's more convenient for you? Die to that, that somebody else might know Christ and you, your caring and your love for that is expected. Well, it takes a little different turn in the remainder of the chapter and seeing our time, um, I won't read verses 18 and following, but basically to abide in Christ means to be despised by the world. It just doesn't fit in worldly values. Uh, I remember a missionary couple I was uh, doing a, some consultation and visit with, uh, and they had been in a very difficult situation. They were coming to the end of their four-year term, had not had any responsiveness, uh, discouraged, had not discovered an opening, a man of peace, that had been harassed, and uh, I mean, it had been really difficult. And now they were going home with nothing to share, having seen God work at all in their life. And they made the comment, said, we've just been wondering if God could use us more effectively someplace else. 
And I could think of many places their gifts could be used where we needed personnel. And I began to suggest some new assignments they may transfer after their stateside time. And they interrupted me and said, now, Jerry, we want you to understand we're willing to come back here next term. And I was incredulous. I thought I was empathizing with them and uh, sensitive. And they said, I said, in spite of the difficulty, no hope of a breakthrough and fruitfulness that you would be willing to face another four years in this assignment? They said, yes, when we got here after language study, we realized that God had not called us to success and personal fulfillment, but to obedience. And if this is where God wants us, we don't want to consider anywhere else. Who tells us that we're entitled to success? That it's all about our fulfillment and gratification. And, and that's why we're serving the Lord and helping out in church and doing things. It's not about us. It's about obedience. And uh, we live in an adversarial world uh, that doesn't know Jesus. In fact, he goes on to explain, uh, why would they hate you as they hate me? Why would they kill you just like they're going to kill you? Uh, it said, because they do not know God and the love of the Father. What can you expect from a lost world? And that's the world that we're called to live in. And isn't it glorious that Christ has come to abide in us, that we can abide in him, the Holy Spirit that he's given to go with us? This is right, this is kind of right in the middle. I mean, he's, he's spending several chapters talking about the Holy Spirit. Don't miss it. That's that middle part of our salvation. A relationship with God is restored, and that's Jesus himself. It's the power of, of the Holy Spirit. And the final one, just don't want to leave it, is uh, verse 26, When the Helper comes, whom I send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Now this is very essential to, to close with about abiding in Christ, chapter 14, what we're going to see more, the work of the Holy Spirit in chapter 16. The Holy Spirit has basically one purpose, to testify to Jesus Christ. Acts 1.8, and you see the power of the Holy Spirit, you shall be witnesses of me to the ends of the earth, to lift up Christ. And there's a, another passage, I just turn over real quick, I'm going to read, well, I'm not going to read it, we'll get there in chapter 17. But what Jesus is, is saying, I mean, this, the Spirit is not to, uh, you know, to just about gifts and signs and wonders and miracles, or even to reflect our spirituality. It's not that at all. You know, if the Holy Spirit is, is seen and empowered in, in, in our lives, it's all about Christ being lifted up and glorified. That, that's what it's, it's all about, not about himself, uh, of having received the Holy Spirit and testifying for that. In fact, another passage Jesus talked about, uh, you know, said, he who comes to me out of his inward being will be rivers of living water flowing. And goes on to explain he was speaking of the Holy Spirit. 
those, those waters of Christ that are just flowing from our life. It's all glorifying Jesus Christ. We had uh, one of the most difficult things I've had to deal with was uh, the martyrdom after the 9-11, the Muslim world. We had uh, seven missionaries that were martyred from Muslim violence. Four who dared to go into Iraq and seize an open door at that particular time were killed. One of those was Karen Watson from Bakersfield, California. You know, she had uh, seen the, uh, you know, the war footage, the war, the fighting, everything going on in that area, and her heart just, just broke for those people. And I remember her testimony and her saying, you know, I knew it wasn't military intervention, it wasn't Western diplomacy, what the people needed was Jesus. But how are they going to know Jesus unless someone is willing to go and share him? So she sold her house, sold her car, resigned from her job, packed up, gave away most of her belongings. When she came to missionary orientation, she had everything she owned in a single duffel bag to go to Iraq. And knowing the risk, she had written a letter and left it with her pastor. And among other things, it said, Pastor Field, if you're reading this letter, it, it means I won't be coming back to Bakersfield. And then she wrote, my call is to obedience. Suffering is expected. His glory is my reward. And she wrote again and underlined twice, his glory is my reward. That was all she was living for. Why has Christ chosen to abide in us and ask us to abide in him, to be at home. This is our home in this life, is life in Christ. It's not about this is the good life, the victorious life, this is the answer to all of our problems. No, so he can be glorified in us, in our obedience, in our loving one another, in our bearing fruit, in our being a witness for him. But we don't have to do it in ourselves, in our own efforts, because this is what we're taught, and this is what we've been told, that this is how we ought to be as a Christian. It's just the natural flow of that spiritual nutrient of the Holy Spirit being within us. And this is the natural outcome of what it means to abide. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for your spirit that encourages us and challenges us and uh, responds to our response to give us all that we need to experience the fullness and the victorious life that we have in Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. What I was going to suggest for our discussion, so you might go home with this in mind, review this list of 10 as kind of an assessment for your life. I mean, is it evident? Okay, go to the Lord, go to the Holy Spirit, thank Jesus for being in you, and let him do what he chooses to do through you. God bless you. Pick up the books. Uh